she told me that, you know, he raped her. All these things also started um, showing up and people wrote letters to Dalai Lama and everyone. So I imagine, would I suggest my nieces to come to this center? And I realized, oh, I would not. Welcome to the Journey Into podcast, a series of inspiring stories from the yoga community. Episode three, In Search of a Guru. So I grew up in Croatia. It was a very nice, quiet, um, small uh, town with maybe one or 2,000 people. So we played uh, on the street until 10, 11 uh, p.m. Croatia was a socialistic country, so we were all kind of having the same uh, environment that we grew up in. I lived in a, in a room with my brother, so it was like my bed on one side of the wardrobe and his on the other side, and he's younger than me, uh, four and a half years younger, and he used to really tease me and he would throw like his socks over the wardrobe, just mess with my books, and uh, it was annoying, but also now when we talk about it, it just we remember it like really uh, as fond memories because there was nothing nasty but at the time I really didn't like him I was like always embarrassed of him he's like younger and just teasing me and I just pretended to be really grown up and um, yeah it was busy but kind of um, kind of intimate it was because yeah we, we, we really relate to each other because we grew up until I was 18 until I left to, to study in Zagreb we just yeah we were in the same room we shared like everything we you know we had uh, we knew each other's friends and uh, it was very very intimate um, uh, family and growing up in in such surroundings so there was not a lot of material uh, wealth and um, means but um, i never felt like a poor or lacking something uh, since my dad was very violent very abusive uh, alcoholic and uh, he cheated all the time on my mom and he just beat her up every day or night so if the if the um if it was possible we would always get our mom in the in the room and then we would just put my brother's bed on the on the door and then we would just wait until morning when he had to go to work and then we would go to school and um sometimes they would just lock the door and we couldn't do anything about it or we just like she would say like it's okay and and he would lock the door and we would just hear screams and i think he would rape her and whatever there was nothing we could have done because my mom always used to say this is how it is this is how it is everybody has that but then you know i found out that not everyone has that yeah nobody likes to talk about that it's a it's a very tough topic and now when i talk to my brother when he comes here to help me work at, around the house we didn't talk about this for 30 years and just in between like that we drink coffee he remembers more i don't know even he's younger he i think maybe he was more receptive and um i think i was just like really escaping a lot and then he because my dad i don't remember that he beat me up but because he beat my mom up i just really felt like he's beating me up but i I was not so scared of him, but, but my mom always told me not to do uh, anything because then she would get repercussions. But my brother said that he was beaten up by my dad, but I could not remember that. I don't remember. He said he was severely always beaten up. 
And so I obviously like just, you know, blocked it all because I couldn't deal with, with, the, with, the, with the amount of, uh, of violence uh, in my life. And then my first boyfriend was the same. He would like drag me for my hair. Nobody would stop or, you know, defend me or nothing. So I just like lived with that. And uh, I think there was a lot of trauma and there is still a lot of trauma in me because of this, what I call like the first 20, 25 years of my life. For me to survive that kind of um, harshness and violence, uh, daily and mostly nightly, I think I had to go and escape into these um, stories, into the books, into journalism. I was a very active child because I just didn't want to be at home. I was like 12 and I wrote, um, I created newspapers, I wrote all the articles in the newspapers, I signed like different names and I even got it published as, when I was 14 years old, so every year I had a newspaper because nobody wanted to write, so I had to write all the articles. I just finished my high school and, and uh, yeah, 1989 I moved to Zagreb and I studied journalism and then in 91 there was a war. So that was really a big, big shift, especially because my parents, my mom is Croatian and my dad is Serb. And so there was like, um, you know, it was very, very difficult. It was a big shift in the family, big shift in the, in the, you know, the whole country, the, the Croatia separated. And I think for us younger people, I was young and a little bit, um, maybe not too aware, or I just could not deal with all of that. We would just go out, although there was a sign that you should not go out, we would go out. There were snipers on the buildings. We were running between the bullets. Um, you know, there were like um, uh, shell bombing and we would still kind of go, go out and party. And we went to the, to the, to the university at the same time and, and I did uh, the interviews and we went to the you know, first front line. I think when you're young, you're just more courageous and a little bit more stupid than you should be. And I think I was just lucky, um, yeah, lucky to be here. And uh, I don't think I would do the same now. But when you're young, you just ignore all those signs, uh, signs, signs and also sounds of, of danger. Because you just think you're, you know, you're there forever. Everything was um, scarce, like gasoline, flour, sugar, coffee, all the basic things. I mean, we didn't even think about luxury um, items. Every alternate day depends like on the, the, the license plate to get a certain amount of gasoline. And then we had also a limited amount of electricity, like every second night or something, the, the light would go out at eight or nine or 10, depends. So the, yeah, maybe for, for other people, it would like, oh, that's uh, strange and terrible. But somehow we lived with that and we were, we felt, oh, we are so lucky. We got this flour and sugar. We can make pancakes or, so it was like a, you know, like a Christmas for us every, every weekend when we could make something new and, and, uh, and I think that stayed with me my whole life. I just, I'm able to be um, enthusiastic about really small things. So it was, um, it was traumatic. And that's, I think, uh, why I started doing yoga. First of all, I was interviewing someone who, who they were doing yoga and I was uh, really impressed by the way they were dealing with an um, extreme amount of stress. 
because we were like bombarded and everything every day. But they were just like really, um, they were not ignoring the situation. They were not indifferent, but they had this kind of distance toward toward the, the, the events around them. So I was really impressed by them. And then I started immediately um, joining them and practicing yoga and they were helping in a hospice. That was another thing that I um, also could not understand because there were young people dying and nobody cared about old people dying, but they went there, they volunteered. They really put their effort into meaningful um, causes. And, um, and that's like, I think I needed something to calm me down. So as a journalist, I just was too much involved in all that was happening politically and socially. And that's when where I found my, my you know, oasis, my refuge, like just doing yoga, meditating, quieting my, my mind and, and, and having some distance toward, towards these events that were happening outside and also inside of my head. So I met my first husband in Zagreb uh, in the 90s. We were it was just after the war and we were um, we actually met in a, in a one pub uh, at the marketplace at, called Dolats in Zagreb and I used to go out there a lot but then I saw this man coming in with leather jacket with long hair and he asked me like what's what the time is but in English so I was like I told my friend she she went to London she was babysitter there I said talk to him I don't want to talk to him why it's like but so that end up being my husband he said when he saw me immediately he knew that we we're going to get married that night but uh, um I just thought he's like really strange looking guy. He's not from Croatia or something. And he ended up being a, 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 an Austrian a physicist, like a doctor of physics. And, and then he got a, a position in San Diego at uh, UCSD. I really wanted to go to California. I said, let's go there. Let's see what's happening. And so we, we got married, we went there, but uh, uh, Robert was just really, really into the science. He was the one we would go to the beach. He had these huge books, you know, huge books <laughs> taking with him every time. I was like, let's talk, let's go, let's have fun. And he was very, he, he is extremely nice uh, person. We're still in touch uh, like daily, not daily, weekly. But um, he was just a lot in his, in his science. And, and as you can, I guess, notice, I'm a very social person. I like to interact and um, I just felt neglected. And um, it was not a good time. I actually uh, cheated on him because I felt that I don't get enough attention and I just tried to uh, sabotage it or get some more interest or whatever, provoke. Or... And then because Robert and me, we were such good friends, we said, let us try again. So we tried again. We moved to Germany. We start. yeah, we had a little home. He also like taught there at the university. But still, it's just, it was not that. We re really became like brother and sister and we were just friends and, and, and it was not enough for me. We separated and then we got divorced. And at that time, then I noticed a little flyer in a, in a Stuttgart in the Linden Museum, in, a, in, in like a nice museum about a Buddhist retreat. So I thought, okay, I really have some things I have to sort out in my life. And maybe I can just go somewhere and have some quiet time to, to settle and see what I want uh, from life and why I'm behaving like this. 
If you're enjoying the Journey Into podcast, don't forget to subscribe to receive new episodes. And if you're really enjoying our series, we'd love it if you could leave us a review on the Apple Podcast app or Spotify. So I saw this flyer just somewhere around my birthday and in a couple of days then it was Christmas retreat in, in a, like a, a, a winter, winter term someplace in Germany. And then I went there uh, um, to meet this uh, uh, Sogya Rinpoche and I read his book in, in California. I bought his book, uh, Tibetan Book of Living and Dying. So I went there and I spent I think 10 days of this retreat, Buddhist retreat, but I didn't like it at all. It was not um, it was not place of quietness meditation. Rinpoche was very like a robust, sturdy man, um, and he was very demanding, very commanding. And I was like, okay, what a waste of time! I'm just never going to do anything about it. Uh, I'll never go there again. But then somehow, I went there again in a year. Like a year, I wouldn't do anything. And then again, next Christmas, I would go there. And I still didn't like it at all. I was like, this is crazy. I don't understand anything what's happening here. Why is he so, 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 so firm and so negative? And he's like training people in very, like not nice, humiliating ways. But then the third year I would go and there was this really wonderful teacher from Tibet coming, Trushil Krimpache. And then just I saw I remember that moment when I saw him coming out of the car and just like being so natural, so peaceful. I just realized maybe this is how I want to be. He looked so peaceful. And then when he came to the um, this uh, big uh, hall, when he sat on the throne, he just had a cup of tea and he ate some raisins, you know, she just would put one raisin in the mouth and enjoy it like it's the most amazing, like a delicious, the expensive meal on this planet. And I was like, oh my God, this is how I want to be. He has the, he has the secret, you know. I said, I'm just staying. I had a tent and it's in, a, in the south of France. It's beautiful weather, but as soon as the summer is over, it's tough and it's in the mountains, in the plateau. I had this tent and I stayed in the tent for four months until November, I just was freezing, I was scared, the tent was had holes in, you know, there are wild boars around, it was like, and I'm not, I'm not an outdoor person like that, I, I like, I'm very scared, I'm very scared, I'm like really scared of all of that, but I decided I want to do that, um, so it was a free retreat, uh, started, there were serious, uh, uh, of teachings every day for like six months and then six months of practice but because I just went home I gave everything away and um, and threw away most of the things that people didn't want and whatever I had money I had I gave it to this um, community so I was just without anything so I just worked there during the winter and practiced because you have to accumulate certain practices and then in summer, there would be again, like huge amount of people coming from all over the world, like 3,000, 4,000 people receiving teachings from this Rinpoche and other Rinpoches would come and Dalai Lama would come. And so it was really in the summer was a lot of activity. So I would study, go to the teachings, work and like that for uh, three years. And after three years, I wanted to stay and contribute further. So I just stayed and um, I just worked myself to death almost. 
somehow I don't know how to do things um, moderately. That's why I hope next 50 years I'll, I'll, I got it. I just do everything very, very extreme. Like when I did yoga, uh, when I started learning yoga or becoming a teacher, I would just do it for 12 hours a day. I would just do yoga. So when I started Buddhism, I just did it day and night. I would sleep really like two or three hours. I don't know what happened, but I was completely maybe indoctrinated or maybe just fascinated by this idea. I think also from socialism, we have this little bit of sacrifice and community. So for me, it's not a problem to do things for, for others or for benefit of others. But I had serious burnouts. And then the stories of the abuse also started coming out that Rinpoche was abusing and uh, was aggressive. And uh, somehow I knew, of course I knew it, but I thought it's part of the tradition, it's da da da. You, you get really brainwashed. I, I really, you know, and especially because of my experience with, with my dad and everything, it, um, he, he wouldn't do it in front of me. Only until one friend, she told me that, you know, he raped her. All these things also started um, showing up and people wrote letters to Dalai Lama and everyone. So I imagine, would I suggest my nieces to come to this center? And I realized, oh, I would not. I said, okay, I'm not doing this, I'm leaving. And um, yes, and, and, and I left, you know, I was like 40, 45, I have nothing. I don't have even a bicycle, I don't have like one penny, like nothing. I gave even my books, you know, my most precious items, my books, I gave everything away. Uh, I really hope that I learned my lesson. I mean, obviously never say never because so many things I said never and then they happened. But now I have certain amount of experience, uh, life experience that I just, um, would not search or seek a guru uh, or I would not trust anyone who says that don't use your brain, just listen to me. Yeah, I think this intuition is so important that I neglected my intuition in, in kind of um, in sake of bigger purpose. But I think everybody should follow their intuition uh, when, when you feel that somebody wants to manipulate you or misuse, um, misuse you or or someone else, you have to react. I think this is really important. If not for your own sake, you have to do it for others. I think everybody can be their own guru and I think everybody can be your guru and I think everything can be your guru. If you understand that the guru is a teaching, sunshine can be my guru. Uh, my husband, whom I just hate sometimes, can be my guru because I had to develop patience and, and compassion and love. I met my husband, second husband, so far is the second, uh, in uh, France, in this Buddhist center, where I stayed for uh, 10 years or, or more. So he's uh, English and he's younger than me. And um, when he approached me and asked me out, I was very reluctant and a little bit rude because I said, like, there is no way, absolutely no way that we'll ever be together. We are very different. 
uh, I'm Croatian. I'm very, you know, full of um, fire and temperament. And, and you're British, you're very calm, you know. So I don't think we can really fit together. I said, okay, we can get, we can go out. Okay, we can go out for coffee. And then since then, that was the first, yeah, that was just like that first meeting. And since then we never, we never separated. We just said like, let's give it a try. And uh, for him, it was more as a try because he was not in, in many relationships before. But for me, I was really sure. I told him, I don't want to fool around. Uh, I've done it all. And I just really, you know, want to have it a relationship. And that's until the end of my life. And he was like, Jesus Christ, I just wanted to have a one night stand with you. I was like, no, not going, no, not going to happen. No, mm -mm. practicing together. It does help because you kind of tune in um, each other on, on, a, on a certain level, even without speaking, when you just quietly sit next to each other. Even if you sit in, a, in a different rooms, when you get angry at each other, I'll practice my room, you practice it, or in the cor different corners. But there is some energy really, you just like uh, empty all of that unnecessary noise uh, about you know ordinary things. And then you just kind of reconnect on a human level where you're both humans with different tendencies but the same need just to be understood and, and cared for just listened to even as a child i always said that i will be the happiest when i have like just all gray hair i, I that was my idea of happiness and of contentment just being gray haired and being this like wise i don't think i'm going to be wise but you know this elderly lady this is just like my uh, like dream, my dream. Um, so uh, aging is something that I'm really looking forward to. And I'm going to be 50 now in, in, in two months. And um, I just say this is just, you know, first half of my life. And I did a lot of research and now I can just like implement all of that and relax. And uh, and this is, I think, what comes with, with aging or um, healthy aging. If you're just old and we are like, you know, dependent and not healthy, this is not fun. But if we, if we are elderly and we still have a lot of vitality and that's, that can be really fun because you just lose a lot of inhibitions and you know the priorities. So you don't waste your time, you focus on what matters and then, and then you can just accomplish things. Thank you for listening to the Journey Into podcast. For more content from today's teacher, follow us on Instagram at journey.into or visit our website at journeyinto.com.